December 18, 1994, a day etched in the annals of crime history, marked the horrific attack on Alison Botha in the quiet city of Gyebraha, South Africa. On this seemingly ordinary day, the sun rose and set like any other in the serene city of Gyebraha. Known for its tranquil beaches and friendly locals, few could have imagined the terror that was about to unfold. In the heart of this peaceful city lived Alison Botha, a woman whose life was about to be irrevocably altered. Alison was just like any other woman in her mid-twenties, full of life, with dreams and aspirations. Her radiant smile and vibrant personality lit up any room she walked into. She was the kind of person that everyone loved to be around, but behind the twinkle in her eye, no one could have foreseen the darkness that was about to descend. As the sun set on that fateful day, a sense of foreboding filled the air. The city that was usually filled with the sounds of laughter and joy was eerily silent. The usual bustle of the city had retreated to a hush whisper, as if it was holding its breath, waiting for something to happen. And then it did. As the clock struck midnight, an unimaginable horror descended upon Allison, an event so shocking and brutal that it would send shockwaves through the city and beyond. Her world as she knew it was about to be shattered. The peace and tranquility of her life was replaced with a nightmare that most could only imagine in their darkest fears. In the hours that followed, Allison would face a brutal attack that would not only threaten her life, but also challenge her will to survive. It was an ordeal that would test her strength, her courage, and her determination to live. As dawn broke on the following day, the city of Gyebraha woke up to the news of the horrific incident. A sense of disbelief and shock washed over the city as the details of the attack started to unfold. This was the night that would change Allison's life forever. Earlier that evening, Allison was oblivious to the impending doom. Little did she know, danger was lurking around the corner. It was a time of innocence, a time of naivety. Alison Botha, a young woman full of life and vibrant energy, was living in the bliss of the present, unaware of the shadow that was about to eclipse her world. A regular evening in Kebirha, South Africa, 1994, held an unseen terror, a danger that would change the course of her life forever. Alison was just like any other 20-something, navigating the world with her own dreams and aspirations. She was a beacon of joy, spreading laughter and warmth wherever she went. Her sparkling eyes held an unspoken promise of a bright future, a future she was excited to embrace. But, unbeknownst to her, there were eyes that watched her with sinister intentions, eyes that saw her not as a vibrant soul but as a target, a prey to their monstrous desires. Unseen, unnoticed, these eyes marked her, waiting for the perfect moment to strike. Allison, in her blissful ignorance, continued her nightly routine. She laughed with friends, shared stories, and reveled in the joy of camaraderie. She was a star shining bright, oblivious to the fact that even stars can be overshadowed by the dark void of the universe. The clock ticked on, each second a step closer to her impending fate. Yet, Allison, engrossed in the comfort of her world, remained unaware. The danger was unseen, a silent predator lurking in the shadows, its eyes fixed on its unsuspecting prey. And as the night grew darker, so did the fate of innocent Allison. The stage was set, the predator was ready, and the prey, unaware of the looming danger, was about to face a night that would forever change her life. As the night grew darker, so did the fate of innocent Allison. In the dead of the night, the unsuspecting Allison fell prey to a brutal attack that would shock the nation. This wasn't an ordinary night in Gyebraha. It was the night that would forever change the course of Alison Bota's life. 
Two men, strangers to her, had been lurking in the shadows, their intentions as dark as the night that enveloped the city. Their target? A young woman named Allison, who was unaware of the imminent danger that awaited her. The quiet of the night was shattered as these men seized Allison, a sudden and violent interruption in a world that, until that moment, had been as ordinary as any other. The savagery of their actions was a stark contrast to the serene silence that had previously filled the air. It was an attack of unimaginable brutality, a crime of such heinous nature that it would send shockwaves across the nation. Each action taken by these men was a deliberate act of violence, each strike a testament to their ruthlessness. There was no mercy shown, no consideration for the life they were so callously tearing apart. It was an act that went beyond the realm of human comprehension, a glimpse into the depths of depravity that some are capable of sinking to. We can only imagine the terror that gripped Allison as she was subjected to this brutal onslaught, the fear that clutched at her heart, the desperation that must have filled her every thought. It's a reality that's hard to comprehend, a situation that most of us can only envision in our darkest nightmares. Yet, amidst this terrifying ordeal, there was a strength within Allison, a resilience that was about to be tested in the most extreme of circumstances. For even as she was subjected to this horrific attack, a spark of determination ignited within her. It was a spark that refused to be extinguished, a will to survive that would not be quenched. As the attack finally came to an end, Allison was left alone in the darkness. Severely injured and in unimaginable pain, she was discarded by her attackers, left as a grim testament to their unfathomable cruelty. Left for dead, Allison's fight for survival had only just begun. Abandoned, mutilated, fighting for every breath, Allison refused to succumb to her injuries. The night was a symphony of horrors, but Alison Botha, with a spirit as indomitable as a fortress, was far from giving up. In the face of death, she found an inexplicable strength, a primal instinct to survive that coursed through her veins with a fierceness that refused to be extinguished. The chilling wind whispered tales of despair, but Alison was not ready to become another sad narrative. She had a story to tell, a story of survival, of hope, and she was determined to live to tell it. Alison was left for dead, but she was alive, every beat of her heart a testament to her will to live. Her body was screaming in agony, her mind in turmoil, but Allison was a warrior. And warriors do not surrender. She knew she had to move to seek help. With every agonizing inch she crawled, she was writing a testament of human resilience, of the spirit's ability to fight when the body has given up. Somewhere in the distance, she saw the faint glimmer of light. It was a beacon of hope in the abyss of despair. She crawled towards it with every ounce of strength she had left. Each movement was a battle, each breath a war cry. She was fighting, not just for herself, but for every woman who has ever been a victim, every soul that has ever been crushed under the weight of brutality. She finally reached the road, her body a tapestry of pain, but her spirit unbroken. She flagged down a car, her hand a beacon in the darkness. The driver, a woman, was her savior that night. She rushed Allison to the hospital, her car a chariot of hope racing against the ticking clock. The doctors were astonished, not just by the extent of her injuries, but by her resolve. Allison was a testament to human endurance, to the power of will over matter. She was a woman battered, but not broken, wounded, but not defeated. Against all odds, Allison survived the night, but the battle was far from over. Her fight for survival was just the beginning of a long, arduous journey, but she was ready. She had survived the night, and she would survive the days to come, 
She had fought death and won. Now, she was ready to fight for justice. As the sun rose on the morning of December 19th, the extent of the previous night's horror came to light. The aftermath of the attack on Alison Botha was a time of shock and outrage, a period where the nation was forced to confront a reality that was too brutal to imagine. The horrific event sent ripples through every corner of South Africa, and the public reaction was one of disbelief and sorrow, but also of anger. The police investigation kicked into high gear immediately. Every piece of evidence was scrutinized, every lead was followed. The investigators worked tirelessly, driven not just by their duty, but by a personal resolve to bring the perpetrators to justice. The crime scene was a chilling testament to the savagery of the attack, a silent witness to the unimaginable horror that had unfolded. As news of the attack spread, a wave of shock swept across the country. People from all walks of life were horrified by the brutality inflicted on one of their own. The incident was not just an attack on Allison, it felt like an assault on the collective conscience of the nation. The public outcry was deafening, and the demand for justice, immediate and unequivocal. In the midst of this, Allison was fighting her own battle in the hospital. The doctors and nurses worked around the clock, doing everything in their power to keep her alive. Her condition was critical, but her spirit was unbroken. She was a beacon of resilience in the face of adversity, a symbol of strength in a time of despair. The media played a crucial role in the aftermath. They kept the public informed, ensuring that the incident was not forgotten in the hustle and bustle of daily news. The coverage was relentless. Allison's story was on every TV screen, in every newspaper, resonating in the hearts of millions. The attack had also sparked a nationwide conversation about violence against women. Protests erupted in cities and towns across South Africa, with people demanding stricter laws and better protection for women. The incident served as a harsh reminder of the deep-seated issues plaguing the society, forcing people to confront and question the status quo. In the days and weeks that followed, the nation stood in solidarity with Allison. Candlelight vigils were held, prayers were said, and messages of support poured in. It was a stark contrast to the darkness of that fateful night, a beacon of hope in a time of despair. The brutal attack on Allison Botha had shaken the nation to its core. In the wake of the attack, the hunt for the perpetrators was on. The road to justice was long and winding. The days that followed were a whirlwind of activity. Law enforcement swung into full gear, combing through the details of that fateful night. The investigators, hardened by years on the job, were taken aback by the ferocity of the assault. Yet they were equally inspired by Allison's courage and resilience. It was a race against time. Every lead was crucial. Every piece of evidence, a potential key to unlocking the case. The challenges were substantial. The crime scene was tainted by the elements and the passing of time. Witnesses were scarce, and the ones they could find were reluctant to come forward. The investigators were working in the dark, trying to piece together a puzzle with missing pieces. Despite these hurdles, the team remained undeterred. They were fueled by the desire to see justice served, to ensure that the monsters who committed this heinous act would face the full force of the law. They knew that every second that ticked by was another second the perpetrators were free. The thought was unbearable. Their persistence paid off. Through a combination of tireless investigative work, community cooperation, and a dash of luck, the attackers were eventually identified and apprehended. It was a moment of triumph, a glimmer of hope in the bleak aftermath of the attack. But the road to justice was far from over. The trial that followed was a grueling process, an emotional roller coaster for all involved. 
the defense attempted to discredit the evidence to cast doubt on the prosecution's case. Yet the truth was undeniable. The evidence was irrefutable. The jury took notice. In the end, the gavel fell, marking the close of a chapter in this harrowing tale. The attackers were found guilty and sentenced accordingly. It was a victory, not just for Allison, but for every victim who ever felt voiceless, for every survivor who fought back against the darkness. Justice was served, but the scars of that night remained. Rising from the ashes of her ordeal, Allison embarked on a journey of recovery and advocacy. In the wake of her harrowing experience, Allison Botha faced an uphill battle. In the face of this adversity, she chose not to retreat. Instead, she ignited a spark of resilience, fueling a journey of recovery that would inspire millions. Rebuilding her life was no easy feat. The physical wounds healed with time, but the emotional trauma lingered. Yet, Allison refused to let her past define her future. She found strength in her survival, viewing each day as a testament to her unyielding spirit. Choosing to share her story was a significant part of her healing process. It was not just an act of courage, but a beacon of hope for others who had faced similar horrors. Her words resonated with victims of violence, offering solace and understanding in a world that often turns a blind eye to their pain. Allison's advocacy didn't stop at sharing her story. She became an active voice, tirelessly working to raise awareness about violence against women. She used her platform to challenge societal norms, to push for justice, and to support other survivors in their healing journeys. Her efforts have been recognized both locally and internationally. Yet for Allison, the greatest reward is seeing the impact of her work on the lives of others. Each person she helps, each story she shares, each change she inspires is a tribute to her strength and resilience. Allison Botha, a symbol of resilience and bravery, continues to inspire millions. The story of Allison Botha serves as a stark reminder of the horrors of violence, but also the power of resilience. It's a tale etched in pain and brutality, yet it's also a testament to the indomitable human spirit that refuses to be crushed. Allison's story isn't just about her. It's a narrative that echoes the struggles and triumphs of countless individuals who faced and overcome unthinkable adversity. She was a woman who, in the face of a gruesome attack in 1994, fought for her life with every ounce of strength she had. Her resilience in the aftermath, her determination to not only survive but to thrive, is a powerful lesson. It's a lesson on how we can rise above our circumstances, how we can transform our darkest moments into stepping stones towards a brighter, stronger future. Allison's fight for justice was a journey fraught with challenges, but it was a journey she undertook with unflinching resolve. Her tireless efforts resulted in the conviction of her attackers, a victory not just for her, but for every survivor of violence. It's a clear message that, no matter how bleak or hopeless the situation may seem, justice can and will prevail. But Allison didn't stop at justice for herself. She used her experience, her voice, to advocate for others who've been victims of violence. She turned her ordeal into a platform, a beacon of hope for others grappling with their own battles. It's a testament to her courage, her compassion, and her undying belief in change. And so, as we delve into the depths of Allison's story, we're reminded of the broader themes that it represents. It's a narrative that underscores the importance of resilience, the fight against violence, and the capacity of the human spirit to overcome. It's a story that pushes us to question, to empathize, and to act. Alison Botha's story is one of survival, resilience, and the unyielding human spirit. A case that happened in 1994, 
Well, till then, too, as you correctly put out, first to do ten tennis program. Well, at least tennis uh, in August of 1995 by the court, Elizabeth High Court. And then um, they've been um, in prison ever since. They were arrested in 1994. And then um, they were attempts when they had reached the minimum sentencing period uh, to be placed on parole, and they were unsuccessful um, until um, recently when they were then granted parole. But it's, it has been a very long process demonstrating that a person sentenced to life carries a higher risk, hence even the process is much more laborious as compared to someone sentenced to a determined period. So indeed, um, on the 4th of July, which is yesterday, they were then placed um, on parole. All right, and the process itself, of course, would also emerge um, from the victim's statement or family. Talk us through how then, uh, or who are those that then participate in the process of parole? Okay, how it works is that um, uh, parole um, regime does not come when an inmate has certain material. It's filtered in when a person is admitted. You have a structure called the case management committee. It is a structure that will put together um, a correctional sentence plan of an inmate detailing what would be expected of that particular inmate having been assessed and then is identified. So throughout the rehabilitation journey of, the, of an inmate, the case management committee will be updating that particular profile. And once the person has then served the minimum um, detention period, they will then uh, finalize that profile in terms of making sure that everything is included there and also making a determination when um, the parole hearing processes will take place where the victim uh, will also be given an opportunity to make representation. Um, the victims have a choice whether they want to do it uh, in person or, or in a written submission. Um, uh, but they, they are um, uh, invited to make their representation. And then from there, the, the process will go to the correctional supervision and parole board. We will study the profile, uh, engage with the inmate if necessary. And then they will take that particular profile to the National Council for Correctional Services. What is important here is that and the National Council for Correctional Services is chaired by a judge from the High Court, is comprised of other professionals, magistrates, attorneys, psychologists, and other um, uh, general members of the public. And they go through everything and that uh, is, is in that particular profile. They will then make a recommendation, which then go to the minister as empowered by Section 78 of the Correctional Services Act, who will then make the final decision. And it's, it's life has to fall in this category because of the risk, as I explained earlier. Then the minister and they will decide whether that person has to be raised on parole or not. And there will be uh, parole conditions attached to it if that person is deemed to be fit. But those conditions are then to um, manage uh, the risk that has been identified and also to assist that person to adjust now to a normal life where expected to be a normal agency. Yeah, and would you say it's, it's justice served? I suppose from a, a survivor's perspective, that may not necessarily be the case, albeit that the, uh, the two perpetrators have served almost 28 years in prison, but nonetheless, the corrections uh, uh, services would still have to uh, supervise and ensure that the two uh, parolees do not step out of line, as it were. 
Yes, and what is important there is that the sentencing remarks were clear from the judge that if the two were to be placed on parole, they would have to remain on parole for the rest of their natural life. Hence, that is reflected on their um, uh, parole conditions. We therefore have to um, monitor them. We have a system called the Community Corrections, where you've got monitoring officials. Don't make it a point that they monitor them and uh, continuously update them if there are any changes um, either to their dress or maybe securing employment or starting a business. But we, have, we need to have eyes in terms of whatever activity they embark on, or even if they need to travel to and the other outside of that district. So those conditions are there in terms of managing that particular risk. Um, yes, um, uh, the victims um, may always feel that they would want people to die in prison, but um, unfortunately the act is clear that we have to rehabilitate people, and when they are considered to be ready for um, then reintegration in, into society, we need to consider such, but the victim has to be involved. It's a decision that cannot be taken without the victim's involvement. We said to thank you for your time this morning uh, on that update. We are speaking to Singabakong Malo, Correctional Services spokesperson on the Ellison Porter. Uh, the perpetrators having now been released on parole after. We've got Alison Butta here, your guy, and she's just about to give a talk about womanhood and some of the challenges that she's had to deal with in her life. Alison, briefly, what is it about? Well, they're having here at York just for, for women, a Women's Week, you know, it's Women's Day next next um, Tuesday, just to raise awareness once again about gender-based violence and just honouring, I think, and showing value to their female teachers and stuff. So they asked me to come today at the end of their week just to share about my story because I am myself a survivor of gender-based violence that happened long ago. So the kids don't really know um, about what happened to me, but they've been told to look online, which apparently is a lot of. And I'm just here today really to talk to them. I think I'm going to tell them a little bit more about what happened and also some warnings because there are warnings in my story because, and you always worry, I'm a mom myself of teenagers. Yeah. You hope that you give some kind of, make them just be more careful. And also maybe just some lessons of how to handle something. I've got 15 minutes. I don't know how I'm going to do all of this. <laughs> yeah. So there's some inspiration, some warning and... That's exciting. You're also a mom of two boys. I am. Yeah. From, from York. One has left already last year and one is still here at York. Thank you, Alice. People want the happy fairy tale ending for me. So do I. But for now, keep saluting me. I was abducted outside my house at knife point taken to the bushes on the outskirts of the city. They both raped me. They stabbed me in the stomach afterwards in excess of 35, 36 times, the doctors couldn't tell, and then cut my throat 16 times. I remember I was very, very scared. I was obviously fearful, but I was also trying desperately to stay calm. I was watching them for ways that I could have identified them later. I remember doing that. Um, but obviously, when, once I started my fight to actually survive, once I, once I started crawling and trying to get out, most of me knew I wasn't going to make it, but I wanted to. It's something that you never get over. You know, even now, I don't think I'm over it, but I think that talking had, has helped me. It was about a year later that I felt psychologically that maybe there would be a life after this. With a story like Alison, which is so extreme, what she went through is so extreme, there's so much to be found in there. There's so much healing or or just, just a, a, leaning, a shoulder to lean on for victims of rape and abuse and I mean things have not gotten better for women in South Africa they've gotten worse violence violence against women and children is peaking worldwide um, 
So, so there is a lot, a lot, a lot to be gained from this story. But ultimately for me, the message is a bigger one than just I'm a rape survivor and, and all of that. It is the fact that the true hero lies within. I've had to look at that night and really look at why, why was it? Because people are amazed, you know, they, people have said to me, oh, I just would have given up and died. And I had to attribute my mother, actually, because I, I think she, from a young age, taught me that I was valuable, that I was special. She would tell me, Alison, you're special. And when I think of that night now, I think amongst all the other things, just wanting to live and whatever, I think I, I, I fought because I knew I was worth fighting for. Initially, it was impactful because it was the trial and getting them to jail and being scared. And is it, you know, have they got friends that they're going to come after me and all of that kind of thing. There was that initially. I was also very angry. Um, I hated them for what they'd done. And I think that burdened on me rather than on them. I was feeling it in my... And it was only really when I decided that if I fought so hard to live, I, I might as well live a life that's worthy of having saved, if you know what I mean. So that's when I started realizing that the choice was mine, that um, if I was going to live a life that was happy, then I had to choose to be. So it was around about then that I started being asked to do talks about what had happened. People asked me to share about it. And that really, I think, has been my, my biggest healing. And the night I went to listen to her talk for the first time, and I walked away a better person and very inspired. And, and I promised myself, I want to be the one to tell this story as a filmmaker. I mean, there were monsters and there was the bad, but that, that's not the only thing. There were also miracles. I like to remind people of that. I think people sometimes... You know, we feel, oh, bad things have happened to us, poor me, and I, it's hopeless. And I think to remind them also that there is hope, that there's hope that miracles will come, and there's hope that if we choose to look at the stuff that's happened to us in a way that, what, what can I find in here that's good, we will find it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.